Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 119. Uh, baseball is underway. We've got spring training going on the professional side of things, the college game, high school seasons are rocking and rolling. Um, and it's actually led to some great questions that we're going to use for this month's Q&A. Um, we're going to attack a few different uh, kind of aspects of baseball development and managing baseball players that I think are, are vitally important to discuss, particularly at this time of year. So hopefully there's a little bit of something for everyone in this episode. Before we get to today's show, I want to quickly give you a heads up that registration is now open for our 2022 CSP Collegiate Elite Baseball Development Program. This event takes place at our Hudson, Massachusetts facility and runs from June 6, 2022 through August 12th. This will be the sixth year we've run the program. and Each year we've had pitchers move to Massachusetts from all over the country and abroad. This summer, we anticipate another awesome collection of motivated athletes who push each other to get better in conjunction with the same training opportunities and expertise we provide to our professional athletes. This program is a great fit for pitchers who need to prioritize development over just getting innings or exposure. In other words, it's a suitable replacement for those who need, still need to throw, but also need to do things like gain 20 pounds, learn a new pitch, sort out aches and pains, or improve their mobility. We've even had some post-surgical athletes who have come and participated in the program as part of their return to throwing program. Each athlete will begin with a thorough initial assessment um, on both the movement and the pitching side of things that will set the stage for individualized strength conditioning and throwing programs. We do speed and power testing, utilizing our Proteus motion device, and we integrate that in the assessment process and track it periodically throughout the summer to make sure that progress is being tracked consistently on an objective measure. Uh, your individualized programs will correspond to six days a week of training. Generally, four to, of the six days per week are double sessions with throwing in the morning and strength conditioning in the afternoons. Um, in our throwing programs, we integrate things like weighted ball work, long toss, bullpens, uh, video analysis. We'll use detail, detailed track man breakdowns and high-speed camera work in these bullpens as well. Uh, pitchers also have the opportunities to throw live to hitters. And we've historically placed quite a few arms in the prestigious Cape Cod Baseball League late in the summer in light of some of the improvements they've made. We've also had several athletes over the years who have been drafted following participation in this program. It's really a, a perfect fit for a college uh, freshman right after his first year at school. Um, all athletes receive manual therapy with our licensed massage therapist or physical therapist, as well as nutritional guidance throughout the program. We also have recovery initiatives like Mark Pro and Normatech available to athletes if they choose to participate in those. And last but not least, we incorporate regular educational components for athletes on the why behind the training. You know, previously this is, you know, consists not just of staff presentations, but also calls and in-person meetings with major league players and, and established coaches from around the country. And the best part is that it'll take place in a really motivating environment where athletes can, can push each other to be the best they can be. And we, we optimize the situation so that you can help change the person. Um, we've seen some great results in this, and it's, it's one of my favorite things that we do each year. Um, if you're interested in learning more, you can reach out to us at CSPMASS, that's C-S-P-M-A-S-S at gmail.com. Again, this program runs from June 6th through August 12th. It's a 10-week program, and you can learn more by reaching out to CSP. M-A-S-S at gmail.com. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. 
whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. All right, we're going to get this going with some Q&A that I've received actually over the past couple months. It's been a little while since we've done an actual Q&A on this podcast, so I've stockpiled some different content. Um, the first question is, now that we're into the in-season period, are there particular strategies that you feel are extra important to prioritize with your players across all levels? Um, so I think this is a really, really good question, and it's it's obviously one that's a, a little bit loaded and it may be hard to unpack. Um, so I actually took some time just to gather my thoughts and some of my, you know, really key stra- you know, points that I wanted to stress. Um, so I came up with six of them. And then the first one I would say is from an in-season standpoint, you want to utilize a high low model. And, you know, this is challenging at the professional level, you know, where guys may play 200 games in 230 days from spring training all the way into the postseason. but it's actually a lot easier to, um, you know, employ, at the college and the high school levels when, you know, athletes may play, you know, maybe they have busy weekends where they'll play a couple games and maybe a a couple during the midweek period as well. Um, But for the most part, you're not going to see a whole lot of college players that are ever playing more than five games a week. You know, you might see, you know, three over the course of a weekend and then, you know, one midweek game. So I like the idea of trying to consolidate stress wherever possible. This is particularly important. We're talking about pitchers who are throwing on five, six, or seven day, you know, rotations. And, and I'll, I'll show the, maybe I'll describe the, the bad way that we've historically seen things done. So talking about pitchers on a five day rotation, and we know is that a lot of pitchers really struggle going from high school and college on a seven day rotation, integrating to the, the five day rotation that we see in, in professional baseball here in the U S and even some of the, um, 
you know, the, the, the pitchers from the far East who come over to pitch, um, you know, in America where they're going from a once a week outing, um, to a five day rotation, they tend to struggle with this and they, they kind of have to learn how to pitch at 90%. Um, so in these situations, we've seen professional organizations try like a six day rotation. Um, we've seen scenarios where they piggyback, um, where they might have two different starting pitchers. One goes five and one goes four in a nine inning game. We've seen scenarios where players come into professional baseball and they just go two or three innings, um, just as they get adjusted to this rotation. Um, but one of the things I think that's really overlooked is what else is, is taking place as a stressor. So, um, in the context of the overall, you know, picture, it's the rest of the throwing program beyond just the game appearance. Um, it's also what's happening from a strength and conditioning standpoint. And, and a classic model that we've seen on a five-day rotation is on day zero. That's that's the day of the start. So somebody goes out and throws ninety pitches. They come out of the game, and then day one, you know, they usually play catch, or some don't play, you know, catch at all. But um, a lot of them will do like a heavy lower body lift. Um, and, you know, some may do like a distance run or something like that, uh, you know, historically day two is a very common bullpen day. It's probably the most common bullpen day you'll see in, in baseball. And I tend to be more in favor of a day three pen for reasons I'll outline in a second here, but often on day two, it's a, you know, basically it's a, it's a bullpen as well as like an upper body lift, or they may run some gassers, do some agility stuff, something or other. And then day three, in many cases, like, you know, if there wasn't an upper body lift on, on day two, you'll see it on day three. A lot of players will use this as kind of like an aggressive sprinting slash gasser day. You know, there's a, there's a high volume of work. And then we have day four to basically recover. You know, guys may play light catch. They may do some easy sprints, just kind of wake up the nervous system a little bit so they can be ready to pitch again on day five. And the problem that I've always seen with this model is that we see people really dig the hole deep uh, over the course of day zero, one, two, and three that one day may not be enough for them to kind of super compensate to come back where they need to. And we've had a lot of success with consolidating stressors into a high-low model by trying to figure out it's either day one or day two is going to be a low-key day for you. Um, so if it's someone on a, on a day two bullpen schedule, there's a couple options. You can either lift immediately post-game, do an abbreviated one on day zero. Day one becomes super low-key. And day two, you know, is a consolidated bullpen slash, you know, total body lift. So basically day zero and day two are your high-stress days. And day two and day four are your low-stress days prior to your next outing. Um, or those individuals can basically, you know, pitch on day zero, have a nice low-key day one, there's manual therapy, low-key cardio, just move around, feel good. And then on days two and three, they, you know, they consolidated a bunch of work and the hole isn't quite so dig going into that, uh, that day four where they're, they're trying to get ready for another start. So the point is simply that, you know, there's a high-low model in place. And this is why I like a day three bullpen for more athletes. You know, I think it's higher quality work. It kind of shortens the learning loop, um, you know, going into the next start as well, as long as guys don't, you know, get out of their skis and push too hard in that pen. But I also like it because day zero to day one is kind of like a high stress day. They can get in a good challenging, you know, lift the day after their start. Day two is all about feeling good. And then day three is a, a bullpen and another lift. And then there's, you know, different things that we can mix in in terms of, you know, sprint and change of direction stuff and all that. But, you know, the take home point is that regardless of what you're doing, you need to have hills and valleys in your overall weekly training, you know, setup. And where people get into trouble is that they don't appreciate that, that games, especially high level competition, big time velo, you know, running the bases aggressively, all that stuff, you know, that's, that's a high stress. Um, so we need to find some time to, you know, do the opposite. And, and then, you know, sometimes when we add stress, you know, we, it's best just to consolidate things and, and put them all in the same place. So that's the first one. Um, you know, the second thing I would tell you about in-season training that I think is vitally important to consider is that 
training sessions aren't just about lifting. You know, I think we see athletes, you know, they're, they're hanging. They're not necessarily interested in going in because they're afraid they're not going to PR on a deadlift or something like that. What we have to appreciate is that, um, you know, we're also going to the gym to do some self myofascial release, to go through a solid mobility warm up, um, to maybe train, you know, along that like strength speed end of the force velocity curve. We're going to throw the med balls a little bit. We're going to do a whole bunch of different things that are going to deliver, you know, various physiological adaptations that we're, we're seeking, right? So we don't just lift um, for the sake of getting strong. We also, you know, move weights because it has a, a beneficial, you know, effect from our endocrine system, um, for our immune system. You know, there's, there's a lot of benefits, you know, with respect to glucose tolerance and how we handle sugar and things along those lines. So we're trying to impact an entire system, not just the neuromuscular system. So I always say, when you look at some of the most accomplished lifters on the planet, you'd be shocked at how many like four and five out of 10 caliber lifts they've had, right? It's not that they're just going in and peeing or PRing all the time. Instead, sometimes they're just checking boxes. They're showing up, they're getting in some assistance work. Um, they're going through full ranges of motion at joints. Um, you know, maybe they're just trying to move a lighter weight faster. Um, what we know is that strength is actually really, really easy to hold on to. It's one of the biggest things that I'm, I'm, I'm surprised about is my, my powerlifting career is kind of come to an end in 2007, but I still enjoy lifting heavy stuff is that, well, it's you know pretty hard to build appreciable strength once you're at a, a higher level relative to your body weight. It's actually remarkably easy to hold on to it. Um, so lifting heavy as, you know, as little as once a month can, can often get the job done. What actually detrains the fastest is power. And I think where we see a lot of athletes get into trouble in, in, a, in a game like baseball is, you know, if you have a day where you go oh for four and all you know, you're doing is walking back to the dugout because you've struck out every time, you might actually not run that much in a given day. So um, I do think it's important that we use the weight room not just to, to train strength, but sometimes just doing, you know, two sets of aggressive medicine ball throws or some box jumps or something to that effect, even some resistance sled sprints. Um, those things can all be really, really impactful on, on training power, which tends to, to detrain the fastest. Um, but above all else, remember training sessions are not just about lifting. They're about impacting a number of different physiological systems. Um, and, and you can't just write it off because you're tired and don't feel like lifting. A third point, you've really got to maintain body weight. When I see people who struggle in season, it's because weight falls off, you know, the quickest. So, you know, as much as a, a scale is not a useful um, inclusion for, for a lot of people in kind of the, the body composition realm who are trying to, you know, make favorable changes in that regard, I do think for competitive athletes that monitoring body weight is, is really important. I, I encourage a lot of athletes to weigh in on an almost everyday basis because it's a good way to monitor hydration status, whether there's a general trend going in the wrong direction. Um, those things can be really, really important. Um, I think this is particularly important with position players who are on their feet every day, um, just because we have seen over the years a lot of athletes who almost become desensitized to the fact that they're they're getting lighter because in many cases they're actually getting faster. So their absolute power um, may actually be dropping, but from a relative standpoint, they, they do feel better. We know that baseball is a sport that's kind of a combination of both um, absolute and relative power. You have to, you have to do a, a little bit in both, you know, contexts. So just being cognizant of what your body weight's doing, how it relates to overall strength and speed levels are, are really, you know, important considerations. Um, next consideration is just remember that sessions don't need to be long. Um, you know, I think people would be surprised when they look at what happens at the major league level. You know, a lot of the position players we see out there are doing, you know, two 20 to 30 minute sessions a week. You know, we'll see some, some athletes that like to do like one longer session each week. Usually those are the guys that are, you know, a lot bigger, stronger and stiffer, you know, are, are more hyper mobile athletes. 
you know, I've actually met players who, who felt like doing something almost every day was it was a big helper for them. So just enough to kind of create a little bit of motor control and an otherwise loose joint um, was something that, you know, really, really helped them. And, and then, you know, one final point is just appreciate when eccentric exercise and is good and when it isn't, right? So there are going to be times when you want to do new exercises that may make athletes sore. So in those situations, in many cases, we're going to go lower volume. Maybe we're going to do like almost like an introduction week deload where the load's a little bit lighter. We might do like, you know, one set on everything just to get them exposed to it, but not make them crazy sore. And then we'll actually, you know, do a little bit more volume in the subsequent sessions on those exercises over the course of the, you know, three to five weeks that follow. But, you know, in the context of eccentric exercise, you know, if you roll out an aggressive glute ham raise initiative in season, you're going to see a whole lot of really, really sore hamstrings. You like a lot of, you know, long duration, you know, single leg RDLs and stuff like that. You're going to, you're going to make some hamstrings really, really cranky. So I think it's vitally important if you're going to have a, a strong eccentric component um, to your training programs, you got to introduce those things, in, you know, in the off season and the in season and maybe not take them out just because we know when we bring them back, we are going to create um, you know, a pretty significant level of soreness that's going to interfere with how athletes feel and, and how they perform. Um, but there'll also be times when maybe we do more isometric stuff. We may do more purely concentric stuff, things like, you know, trap bar deadlifts and, you know, step ups. Those tend to be very, you know, concentric dominant. Obviously, things like med ball throws and sled pushes tend to be purely concentric as well. So just understand that eccentric exercise, you know, may be better for, for some than for others. And then, you know, an additional point that, you know, wasn't on my initial list, but I think is vitally important is just understand uh, what an athlete's window of adaptation is. So these in-season training stat- strategies are going to be remarkably different for a 34-year-old, you know, middle infielder in the big leagues than they are for a 14-year-old kid. The 14-year-old kid has a huge window of adaptation ahead of him. Um, you know, he needs to make sure that he's crushing it. You know, biggest mistake I see in, in high school athletes is detraining during the season and losing a lot of the gains that they made in the off season. Whereas a lot of like higher level athletes can pull back substantially more and they, they have, you know, for lack of a better term, they have enough muscle memory to fall back on. They, they've held onto that strength. They've established those neural patterns. Um, and, and they're also playing regularly. So they're exposed to more, you know, sprint volume and things like that, that the younger athletes may actually detrain quickly. So I can't overstate enough that sometimes the answer is to forget that it's in season and just train. Um, we've seen really good results with this actually with a lot of our, our junior and senior athletes, um, in high school, kids who may have early releases or almost like study halls during the day where they can come and train in the middle of the day with us. They, they're able to get in a little bit higher volume of training during the season than they otherwise would. And sure enough, um, you know, they're able to continue making a lot of progress during the season at a time where historically you, you thought you really needed to pull back on it. And even just, you know, being around professional baseball players for an extended period of time, I've seen actually a fair amount of pro guys who can continue to get stronger guys whose, um, whose force plate numbers improved throughout the season. You know, obviously we can see velocity, you know, tick up for various reasons, but I do think it's intriguing that even at the highest level, we do see some athletes who are able to get, you know, stronger, particularly when we look at a lot of like the high school draft picks and in professional baseball, they're kids that missed out on a college strength conditioning experience, but they can continue to, to get some really high quality, um, you know, work in. So, um, at the end of the day, lots of different things you can do from an in-season training strategy standpoint. These are the ones that are most, you know, high priority to me, 
But just remember, we're trying to build a, a robust, durable athlete in season. The most important thing that we can do is have a really good off season to build a really good foundation. That, that base is going to be what sustains you, what protects you um, as you're, you're faced a lot more sports specific demands. So, you know, the, the more bold you are with your off season, the better progress you make there the more you can probably get away with coasting a little bit on the in-season side of things. If, if you haven't built a really good foundation though, um, you know, you're kind of going to be swimming upstream once the season gets going. Our second question is college baseball injuries seem to be up early in the season, particularly among high profile arms. What are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing that you think contribute to these increased injury rates in the college game today? Um, this is a good question, but not completely out of left field. Um, we actually had a really good podcast with Dr. Christopher Camp. Um, I can't remember what number it is right off the you know, top of my head, but we looked at, you know, quite a bit of detail about injury trends, um, you know, in professional baseball. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of the arm injuries that we're seeing at the, the big league level, and again, this is pre pandemic. So, you know, separate the last couple of years out, they tended to, to stabilize, you know, quite a bit. Um, and what was really intriguing though, was that the minor league injury rates were going sky high and your, your minor leaguers obviously, you know, tend to be younger than your big leaguers. Um, and, and certainly a lot of those minor leaguers that are getting injured are really just the same age as college players, right? They're high school kids that may be getting to pro ball and breaking. And what I think is a really important discussion on this is it's part of this bigger discussion of a, you know, a long-term change in the, the actual structural adaptations in, in baseball players. Um, guys are broken younger than they ever have been before, right? There's no such thing as a normal elbow or shoulder MRI in, in someone who's throwing 90 miles an hour at age 18. It just does not happen anymore. They all have stress reactions or partial UCLs in their history with, you know, commensurate, you know, uh, calcification on the ligament. Um, you know, we just see crazy adaptations in these athletes at young ages um, because they're being pushed to specialize, um, because the game is moving faster than ever it has at younger ages. There's more strength conditioning available to them. There's more technology to optimize mechanics. There's more, you know, outcome measures like velocity, spin rate, all these different things nowadays that are pushing, you know, skeletally immature athletes um, to go harder and harder and harder, um, you know, early in their career. You know, just looking back, Cressy Sports Performance was founded in 2007. Back in 2007, it was a huge deal. If you were an 88 to 90 mile an hour left-handed pitcher, you were probably a top three rounder regardless of, of where you played or the competition you were against. Um, conversely, you know, three or four years ago, I can, can distinctly remember having five 93 to 95 mile per hour left-handed pitchers who were free agents in independent ball who were struggling to get jobs in affiliated ball. Um, so that the velocity in the game has, has trended in such a crazy direction that it blows me away. Um, you know, Tyler Beatty was our first first round pick. Um, that was back in 2011. Tyler was 93 to 96 in his last high school start. Um, he went 21, 21st overall um, in that year. This year in February, we already have a high school kid who's throwing over 100. Um, so the velocities have changed substantially over the course of time. And I think we just need to be mindful of, of the implications from a pure structural standpoint. So college baseball injuries, are going up just like minor league baseball injuries are going up because, you know, a lot of players are, are too good, too young. So right now sports medicine is trying to keep up. So um, all the more reason for us to, you know, be cautious, you know, with how we manage athletes. We need to encourage multi-sport participation. We need to encourage, you know, hills and valleys in terms of, you know, how athletes man their, manage their competitive calendar so that they're not just throwing full tilt off the mound all the time, but instead there has to be a, a level of progression to it. 
Um, so, you know, guys are broken younger than ever before. And, and then second, obviously velocity is, is bigger than ever before. And, you know, it's just pure physics that, you know, the harder you throw, the more your injury risk is, is, you know, accentuated. And we also know that, you know, taller, heavier athletes do tend to throw harder. Um, so there's probably a fair amount of natural selection that's in play with respect to like this velocity discussion. Uh, third, you know, workload is still an issue. Um, we know that really at the end of the day, there are only a few things that, that we always know predict injuries. Um, you know, we had Ben Hansen on a previous podcast and he made a really compelling point that when we look at mechanics, everyone wants to say they know what mechanics, uh, predict injury. The truth is we don't, we know that mechanics, there are certain things that predict performance, but injuries are incredibly multifactorial and we haven't really nailed that home, but we do know that there are a few things that always seem to predict injury. Um, one is, is being weak you know, rotator cuff strength tests, things like that gen- generally tend to predict injury pretty well. We know that there are some studies that show that certain range of motion issues um, can predict injury. You know, some good research that shows that, you know, if your shoulder flexion is limited on your, your throwing side compared to your non-throwing side, your risk of elbow injury goes up significantly. You know, the, the whole idea of, you know, glenohumeral internal rotation deficit predicting injury has kind of gone by the wayside, but there's a little bit more evidence to suggest that, that limited shoulder external rotation makes you susceptible to certain things, particularly subscapularis injuries. Um, but the, you know, the big factor that, that predicts injury in every single study that's ever been done is, is overuse. So clearly like the workload side of the equation, um, is still an, in, an issue. Um, you know, nationwide, there's more pitch count guidelines at the high school level. That has not been, you know, really carried out particularly well in college baseball. I think we saw some pretty noteworthy and egregious, you know, violations of what we would consider acceptable pitch counts last year in the NCAA postseason. Um, you know, so there are times when, you know, winning is put ahead of, of health. And, you know, there's you know, obviously the, we can, we can debate whether that's right or wrong at that, that age. It's certainly a very different discussion if we're talking about, you know, major league baseball players who are being paid a lot of money in the postseason who are pushing and pushing and pushing to try to win games. I think the college game is a little bit challenging where, you know, sometimes you have a kid who's a, a senior who might not be playing baseball after school and he goes out and throws 130 pitches and people don't really get concerned about it. Whereas if it's a freshman who's got a, you know, a career as a first rounder ahead of him, you know, it's a little bit more of a, a problematic discussion. So I do think workload is a, is a, is a big consideration. Um, you know, and beyond just the workload we see, you know, on TV, we don't know how many, you know, basically guys are getting up and getting hot and then not going into games on the reliever side of things. We don't really know a whole lot about what's going on the rest of their week aside from, you know, what's happening in that Saturday night game. So, um, but all that aside, you know, for me, the biggest issue has always been the start and stop nature of the college game and college game. It's, it's just a huge challenge. So using just the, the competitive calendar as an example, it's really not hard to appreciate what's going on. So, um, let, let's basically say that, you know, a, a kid goes into college as a freshman. Um, you know, he arrives on campus in late August, goes right into fall ball. So ramps up, um, you know, basically, you know, especially if you're in a cold weather climate, it might only go until, you know, late October. A lot of guys will be shut down for, for a period of time to kind of work on what they need to work on. They may start to get ramped back up in early December. Tricky time to ramp people up because they've got uh, uh, final exams for the semester. And then they go home. So there's a little bit of a blind nature to it where college pitching coaches are hoping all their, their players are getting their work in over the course of time. And 
Um, you know, they may come back a, a you know week or two into January, and some of them are really advanced and have gotten all their work in. Some of them maybe aren't where they need to be. Um, some of them are working through some mechanical stuff on their own. Um, so there's you know a short runway to get people ready for the start of games in February. You know, certainly there's a lot more control over what's happening during the college season. Um, you know, as they work their way through that, and then you know, obviously things wrap up in May or June, depending on how good the team is. And then they kind of go all over the place, right? Some of them may shut down and, you know, because their workload is really high. Some of them may go to the, the middle of nowhere to play in a summer league. Some may go to a really prestigious, um, you know, Cape Cod baseball league. Some may go to, you know, private facilities like ours to, you know, put on 25 pounds or learn a new pitch and like our college summer program. Um, but there's, there's an, a blind nature to a big chunk of the year. And, you know, something like that wraps up and all of a sudden it's, it's the end of July and players are, you know, they're trying to decide, do I shut down and get a little bit of a break before I go back for fall ball? Um, you know, is it the kind of thing where I should just continue to like idle it throughout the course of time? But, you know, from a college pitching coaches, you know, college pitching coach, I'm, I'm concerned that one of the biggest challenges that I'm wrestling with is the blind nature of our year. There are a lot of times throughout the year where I get surprised, right? I get surprised when they come back to campus after whatever they've done in the summer. I get surprised, um, you know, when they come back from winter break, you know, after I've, I've sent them home and I'm not really sure if they've done their work. Um, you know, these, you, you always want to avoid those, those periods of time. And so, what we also know is that there's a lot more discussions going into like this acute chronic modeling. And it's probably perfectly, you know, visualized and appreciated during a competitive season. It gets a lot muddier when players scatter to go all over the place. And, you know, some may be playing in Virginia, some of them may be in Alaska, some may be in Hawaii. They just kind of go all over the country. And as a college pitching coach, it's, it's a very challenging thing because I'm a, a big believer that, you know, people in those roles are, are much more managers than they are just pure pitching coaches. So um, the nature of the stop and start calendar in the college game, I always tell people you're better off just continuing to throw than you are taking, you know, 10 days off and then starting back up. Shut down, ramp up. You know, it just messes this acute chronic model um, up, really flips people on their heads. I know a lot of Major League Baseball players who, who feel awful right after the All-Star break just because those four or five days off kill. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll go on vacation, but they'll make sure they play catch on the beach or do something just to keep it moving. Heck, I know a lot of baseball players who don't like to take off days. They'll, they'll go into the stadium and they'll throw just on their day off because, you know, it's, it's not just habit forming. They like to keep their arm moving. And I think they're acutely aware of how um, you know, that acute chronic model is, is, is so important to, to their success. So, you know, if we want to make the college game better, I think it's all about finding, you know, ways to avoid being surprised and not having shut down, ramp up. We have to have, you know, a, a real appreciation for, you know, what our overall workload is over the entire competitive year. And being honest, this is also how development, you know, generally is best. If you look at, you know, the nature of our, our college summer program, while we've had a lot of good results, in this realm is we kind of control all the variables. We know how the lifting and the pitch design work, the bullpens, the sprint work, the nutrition, the manual therapy, how all those pieces fit together, how the, the synergy is in play. And it just gives you continuity. And, and you contrast that with a situation where folks may go and, you know, play in a summer league. They're not sure if they're going to be a starter or a lever. They don't know what kind of routine they're going to be on. They don't know if there's going to be a gym within 30 minutes of their host family. They don't know what kind of food they're, they're going to have at their fingertips. They don't know if the athletic trainer that's going to be with their team in the summer, if there even is one, is going to be able to do a little bit of soft tissue work with them the day after they start. There's just so many variables that are uncontrolled. And we talk about development 
It's all about having a clear, consistent path, you know, consistent messaging and, 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 an, and an understanding of, you know, how to go out and get the work done that, that someone's just kind of laying out for you. So I think that's why we've had some success, but, it, you know, indirectly it relates to why I think injuries are going sky high. You know, summarily, you know, guys are broken younger than ever before. Velocity is bigger than ever before. Workload is still an issue. And then fourth and, you know, most significantly, the start-stop nature of the college game is always going to be a challenge. And the most successful coaches that I know who have kept the most athletes healthy are the ones that understand how to, you know, kind of manipulate that for the better so that they give people the most continuity in their development. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food source ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. Now for our third and final question, what are your go-to strategies for riding the ship when a pitcher's velocity is down in season? This is actually a pretty timely question given that it's March and there are still quite a few players who are in season, particularly in the college and high school ranks um, in cold weather, right? So we see a lot of, I know the Massachusetts, the high school season starts on the third Monday in March and usually the first couple weeks is throwing off turf mounds and gymnasiums and or shoveling snow off baseball fields outside. But you see a lot of teams in the Midwest, Northeast who are, who are actually playing games in pretty cold weather climate. So you do see a lot of velo that isn't where it needs to be early in the season. But I think anytime a, a pitcher's velocity is down relative to their norm, well, the first thing you have to do is be diagnostic. You have to, you have to understand, are they actually hurt? Um, so digging deep on some of this stuff, you know, you'll, you'll certainly see people that actually present with pain or just soft tissue limitations where they feel tight. You know, you, you may see everything, you know, from there all the way to more extreme, you know, swelling in the arm discoloration, which might be indicative of something like a thoracic outlet. So you have to run the entire gamut of, of what could potentially be wrong from a, you know, an actual injury standpoint. But I think you also have to maybe uh, backtrack it just a little bit to, you know, ask, are there components of acute fatigue? Um, in other words, were there, was there a big jump in workload, right? Is this a pitcher who went from throwing 30 pitch pens to making, you know, 60 or 70 pitch starts? Um, you know, is there something about their, their workload that's, that's gone up considerably where, you know, they're just exhausted. Um, this could also be sleep quality challenges. We know there's some really compelling research that shows that injury rates tend to go sky high during final exam time in, in college athletes. Um, we have to be mindful of like, if they're not recovering on the back end, you know, it's, it's going to lead to subsequent form performances that aren't where they need to be. Um, you know, reductions in body weight are always a big one. We mentioned, you know, that in response to a, an earlier question, um, you know, which could also be indicative of, you know, hydration status beyond just losses in muscle mass. So one more reason to monitor body, body weight closely and make sure that, you know, an athletes aren't getting, um, too dehydrated, but, you know, with all these things in mind, one of my favorite strategies in a young population, so we're talking, you know, 22 and younger, is to simply tell guys to take three days off from throwing slash training, eat every healthy food in sight, and then get to bed before 10 p.m. each night. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty quick and easy strategy to, to kind of just test to see if there's some component of acute fatigue. So you try to optimize as much as you possibly can. And just see if these athletes recharge, um, because a lot of the time, you know, the fatigue is what's max masking their actual fitness. 
And, and we know you never want to take a fitness solution to a fatigue problem. Um, so, you know, acute fatigue and the strategy, you know, out of the way, I think the second thing we have to look at is, you know, how are they different from what they were when they were going good? Um, in other words, is, is the delivery different? Um, have there been losses to range of motion? Um, you know, are they detraining the weight room where their strength is it where it needs to be? Um, were there adjustments to the throwing program? Maybe there were big long toss guys and they've, they've pulled back on it. Um, you know, maybe the weather hasn't been conducive to, you know, going out and really stretching it out. So they're just doing a lot of weighted ball stuff against the wall. Um, you know, you can also look at, you know, outcome measures, spin characteristics on Rapsodo, you know, TrackMan, Hawkeye, whatever you've got, you know, if a spin efficiency has gone down, it's a sign that you're, you know, you, maybe you're cutting the baseball and it could be secondary to how you're actually imparting force at your hand or, you know, how your delivery earlier on is, you know, setting your arm up to not, you know, eventually impart force to that baseball the way that you want to. So you always have to, you know, compare where you are to, to where you've been when you've at your best. And, and just appreciate that, you know, those are, are, are vitally important considerations for trying to reestablish it. It's a lot easier to get back to what you were than it is to try to discover it the first time around. So always look back and, and, and try to figure out ways that you can build on your successes. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's really important to appreciate that, you know, this is where a you know, good athletic trainer, good strength and addition coaches who maybe know your body, you know, they've, they've found that you lost 15 degrees of elbow extension or, you know, you're just not moving the same weights that you were in the weight room. And I can't tell you how many times on the young side of things where we've seen, you know, high school age athletes, you know, who are kind of doing the summer travel ball circuit and the velo starting to go down and they come back home for a, you know, 10 to 14 day stint in the middle of the summer. You know, they eat, you know, some good home cooking at home. You know, they, they sleep in their own bed and they get this like recharge and then they go out in the velo jumps not long after that. Um, so you know, over and over again. And you just have to be mindful of like very, very few kids underage, you know, 2021 20, consistently repeat their mechanics. So you can't put too much pressure on them. Um, but you can certainly look for when they're at their best and try to you know, reverse engineer things. Um, you know, third, appreciate that extrinsic factors can influence things. You know, you, if you're pitching on a, a turf mound as opposed to a dirt mound, the velocity is, you know, typically going to be much lower on a turf mound. Obviously, you can pair apples and oranges if you're throwing to hitters versus not throwing to hitters. Generally, you know, velo tends to tick up when there's a competitive landscape, you know, especially if you're throwing in front of fans, throwing in front of scouts, velocity will go up. Um, but likewise, I've seen some, some terrible outdoor mounds where, um, even the best cleats couldn't, you know, outdo just how bad the, the dirt is and, and all that. Um, you know, I think, you know, another extrinsic factor that you have to appreciate is, is a new catcher. You know, if you're not comfortable throwing to someone who can actually receive it, there's a, a tentative nature to what's going on. And, and then finally, you know, weather conditions certainly play into it when it's, it's 40 degrees out and your, you know, your hands freezing cold. Um, you know, it's not going to be an ideal situation to really optimize your velocity. So you have to appreciate all these different things. And then last, but certainly not least, um, you have to ask whether the overall schedule is just a problem. Um, what we see very commonly in, in, in pitchers, you know, that are, are shifted back and forth between starting and relieving is they just can't get into a good routine. They can't find that groove, you know, that allows for a consistent throwing and training schedule, you know, really ideal pre-pitching routine just because they're always, you know, trying to find the perfect time to get their work in while at the same time being fresh if, you know, the team needs them to do something completely different than what they're anticipating. So um, I think, you know, all these, you know, signs point to how do we we just get back to a consistent environment, right? How do we normalize our, our fatigue status? How do we hydrate? How do we get our body weight where it needs to be? How do we get on the throwing program, the lifting and, you know, and conditioning programs that are, you know, ideal for us? 
you know, and certainly how do we get comfortable with a catcher, comfortable with the mounds that we're on. Um, and, and, you know, this just speaks to this concept of, you know, very rarely are, are circumstances perfect. You know, per- things are more perfect in the big leagues when, you know, you, you travel, you know, first class and, you know, you have great food waiting for you. you, stay at nice hotels, you pitch on elite mounds that are perfectly manicured and you do so to, you know, some of the best receivers on the planet with, you know, a game plan that's been meticulously scrutinized by a number of different people. So you can feel very, very confident in your preparation. As we work down to lower levels, you know, high school, college kids don't have all of those variables that are just really optimized. It's no different than, you know, major league infielder, you know, taking balls on a, you know, ground balls on a, on a perfectly manicured field compared to, you know, some of the high school fields that have got, you know, gravel and rocks everywhere. So just appreciate that you can't put too much pressure on yourself. There are going to be, you know, hills and valleys in the context of your, your pitching velocity, but the longer you're at it, the more these things kind of tend to smooth themselves out. Um, so that covers our, our three questions for this go round. Um, by all means, if you have, you know, additional questions that you'd like covered in a future podcast, um, we'd be happy to, to answer those questions. So just, you know, reach out by the contact info we provide, um, the base of, of each of the podcast blogs. And we'd love to, to have a, have a dialogue with you and, and help you dictate, you know, the direction that we take with this show. Um, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me.